Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. Hello, this is your host, Rick Ryman. Today on Audibly Speaking, we have our second podcast episode on the Warren Commission. This time, a commentary on Rob Reiner's new podcast on the assassination. I was originally going to have a podcast at this time that focuses on the strengths of the Warren Commission to supplement the first podcast on the Warren Commission, which was about the mistakes of the commission. However, it's come to my attention that the great director, Rob Reiner, has produced a 10-episode podcast on the Kennedy assassination in which he insists that the evidence that there was a conspiracy in the assassination is 100% reliable. And he also insists that at the end of this program, the end of the 10 episodes, he's going to name the four assassins who took part in this conspiracy. Now, I have one word for this series and what it is attempting to do, and that is sad. Rob Reiner is a fine actor. He's a great director. He has done important service for the country in making the country aware of the dangers of our current political moment. But on the Kennedy assassination, he is completely at sea. He doesn't seem to understand that at least one of the theories that he has really is one of those half-baked hoaxes that I talked about in my previous episode, where only half the story is told. And it almost seems that Mr. Reiner is like one of those excited people who read a conspiracy book, knowing very little about the background of the topic that they're reading about, and then proceed to become breathless with excitement that here they finally understand what really happened in the Kennedy assassination, and there is proof positive that a conspiracy was afoot, and nobody seems to have recognized it before them, although they're getting the story from a published account in a conspiracy book, so one wonders what all the excitement is about. In one of his podcast previews, he mentions Mark Lane's book, but he seems to forget the title of the book, which was Rushed to Judgment. And so if you only read one book on the Kennedy assassination, it's likely that you will be excited, because only half the story is being told in these accounts. And over the course of the decades, since 1963, all of these myths about the assassination have been run to ground and answered very, very comprehensively. So what Mr. Reiner is discussing in one of his podcasts, since I haven't seen the entire 10-episode series, it hasn't been released yet, but he takes to task the Warren Commission for rolling out the single-bullet theory. And we talked about that in our last episode, and I gave some of the reasons why it is a powerful theory, and the Warren Commission should be congratulated for demonstrating the reliability of that theory. 
But here's what Mr. Reiner says about that single bullet theory. First of all, he says that the first shot missed, and that is correct. But Rob Reiner says that this is incredible. This makes no sense at all, that this expert marksman would miss not only the occupants in the car, not only the president, but all the occupants in the car, and even miss the car itself. And yet, after missing that first shot, he accomplished the assassination in the two subsequent shots. And the last shot at frame 313 of the Zapruder film was the fatal shot into the president's head. Well, that is true. Reiner is correctly summarizing the three shots. The first shot did miss. The second shot was the single bullet that wounded both JFK and John Connolly. And the third shot at frame 313 was the fatal headshot. Now, it's not so surprising that the first shot missed. What people don't seem to understand is that the car, once it turned on Elm Street from Houston Street and was directly below the window where Oswald was perched, the car was moving rapidly from left to right. It was right in front of the window, to be sure. It was moving at 10 miles an hour and was directly perpendicular to the window, and therefore it was moving more rapidly relative to Oswald than when the car descended down the incline that Elm Street represented going towards the triple underpass. At that point, the car was getting smaller. It was still going at 10 miles an hour, and in fact, it slowed down after the second shot because the driver of the car turned to look to see what was going on. So actually, the car was moving more slowly once the second shot was fired and then between the second and the third shot. But the point I'm trying to make is that between the second and third shots, the car was not moving perpendicular to the window rapidly from left to right, which was a more difficult target, than when the car was just simply moving away from Oswald's position in a downward trajectory and becoming smaller, but not rapidly smaller, since the car was decelerating after the second shot. So in many respects, the second and third shots were easier to accomplish than the first shot. It's also notable to point out that Oswald could have terminated his plan to assassinate President Kennedy at any time before he fired the first shot. It's also notable that at the time of the first shot, the Secret Service automobile, which was directly behind the president's car, was directly in front of Oswald, and therefore it is likely that he had to stand back from the window to fire a shot from his rifle that would not be seen by the Secret Service directly in front of him. Therefore, the combination of the extreme stress that Oswald was under and the realization by Oswald that this was his do-or-die moment could have caused something that is called buck fever when a hunter fires a rye because his shot is so easy and he's so excited that he misses what seems to be an obvious shot. 
The other possibility with the first shot is that the bullet hits something in between Oswald's position and the presidential vehicle. We know that there was a traffic light, a masthead, directly below the window in the line of sight between the window and the presidential car that was moving down Elm Street. It is more than possible a bullet may have grazed the traffic masthead, hit the curb where we know there was some sparks at the time of the first shot, and then the bullet ricocheted across the grassy separation between Elm Street and Main Street and nicked a curb where James Tague was standing where Main Street meets the triple underpass. So, sure enough, the first shot missed, but there are many, many explanations for why it missed. Now we look at the second shot, and we examine the myth that Rob Reiner is recycling. He's not saying anything new. We've heard this line before. It was a trope that was mentioned in the movie JFK, and we know what a travesty of the truth that movie was. But in JFK and in Rob Reiner's retelling, the point is made that the bullet that hit Kennedy supposedly made a number of twists and turns between Kennedy's throat and John Connolly's back. Of course, the bullet instantaneously, or almost instantaneously, hit both JFK and John Connolly and could not have made right turns and left turns, as Oliver Stone says that the Warren Commission insists that it did. And Rob Reiner is making the same distorted claim about what the Warren Commission actually said. Here's the problem with that cartoonish analysis. And really, the absurdity of this argument, the absurdity that the Warren Commission would have made such an argument, shows that the conspiracy theorists really have nothing to offer in the way of persuasive proof for a conspiracy. And you can see how it all falls apart by just looking at what the facts are in this explanation. First of all, the Warren Commission never said that the bullet was twisting and turning, nor did it have to. Here's what Rob Reiner and Mark Lane leave out of their story. First of all, John Connolly was not sitting directly in front of John Kennedy. The argument is that since the sixth-floor window was diagonal to the car as it was rolling down Elm Street, a bullet that struck President Kennedy would be on a diagonal course, and therefore, since Connolly was supposedly sitting directly in front of JFK, it would have had to make a right turn after leaving JFK's neck, and then make a left turn to go back into Connolly's back. But in fact, John Connolly was in a jump seat that was indented into the car. It was not adjacent to the right side of the car. JFK's seat, on the other hand, was adjacent to the right side of the car. You can tell because JFK's elbow is constantly resting on the right side of the car as the motorcade proceeded through Dallas. So what we have is a situation where a diagonal straight shot, a straight shot directly at the car, which was a diagonal from the sixth floor window, 
would strike Kennedy, and then it would strike Connolly, because Connolly was situated in front of JFK, but to the left of JFK. And therefore, a bullet that was perfectly straight would enter the president's back, exit his throat, and strike the object that was on that path, which was John Connolly. Another thing that Rob Reiner says is that the bullet supposedly hit John F. Kennedy six inches below the neck and then improbably exited his throat and then made all those twists and turns before entering Connolly's back, striking his rib, exiting his chest, nicking his wrist, and then entering his thigh. Although the way Reiner describes it is that the bullet shattered shattered Connolly's ribs and then shattered Connolly's wrist and therefore must have sustained enormous damage. And he concludes his mythic story, again, that has been making the rounds for 60 years by saying that the bullet that was found on the stretcher of John Connolly in Parkland Hospital was a pristine bullet. So here you have all of the elements of the myth, the twists and turns, the bullet that enters Kennedy's back too far below his neck to exit the throat, the bullet that winds up at Parkland Hospital in a pristine condition. All of these arguments are false. Let's take the bullet in the back first. The idea that the bullet struck Kennedy six inches below his neck was due to a drawing which was taken at the autopsy the night that Kennedy was brought back to Washington. That drawing was not intended to be a precise location of the wound, but was just intended to be a rough estimate of the locations of the shots. President Kennedy's shirt also seemed to have a bullet hole in the back that was significantly lower than the neck. And so this also encouraged speculation that the bullet must have entered Kennedy's back much lower than it actually did. A bullet that enters the back just a couple of inches below the neck will exit the throat. If you look at a body, you can see that the lower part of the neck is actually somewhat higher than the middle of the throat. So a wound a couple of inches below the neckline in the back has to exit the throat. It does not have to go upward after hitting the neck, like Rob Reiner says. Now, why do people think that the bullet struck six inches below the neck? One reason is because of this drawing at the autopsy. The artist who drew it explained that he was not taking care to locate the actual point on the body with precision. It was just a rough estimate. We also know from the Zapruder film that Kennedy's shirt had been bunched up behind his neck under his suit, and that bunching up caused a bullet hole significantly lower on the shirt than where the shirt was located at the point of the bullet hole, which was much closer to the neckline. Therefore, there is no real mystery or discrepancy 
The bullet hit Kennedy's back, indeed, about two inches below the neckline. On a straight downward trajectory from the sixth floor, which was the trajectory of the shot, it would exit his throat, the throat being not that far from the neck, obviously. John Connolly was sitting on that trajectory line, just to the left of Kennedy, but in front of Kennedy, and therefore the bullet would not have to make any twists and turns. It would just simply go straight into John Connolly, and a truly magic bullet would be one that exited President Kennedy's throat and went nowhere. A truly magic bullet would be one that exited John F. Kennedy's throat and disappeared. Assuming that it did not disappear, it had nowhere else to go except into John Connolly. And if it didn't go into John Connolly, it would have been found inside the car or it would have hit somebody else. Neither of those two things happened. And in fact, the bullet was discovered on John Connolly's stretcher at Parkland Hospital. Some mystery. Finally, let's take a look at the pristine bullet. The pristine bullet was anything but pristine. A pristine bullet, presumably, is a bullet that's never been fired. But if you look at the single bullet, which is in Washington, D.C., and there have been many pictures taken of it, and if you look at that bullet long ways, looking down at the base, you can see that it is horribly deformed at the base. There is some stratification lines along the bullet that show that it has been fired from a rifle. And therefore, if a pristine bullet is a bullet that's never been fired, this is certainly no pristine bullet. It shows the rifle's striations, and so it definitely has been fired, and it also shows deformation, very, very serious deformation at the base. Now, what we know about bullets is that if they do not hit bone, they will suffer very little damage. And the bullet that hit JFK did not hit bone when it transited JFK's neck. It also did not hit bone when it first entered John Connolly's back. It was yawing between JFK's throat and Connolly's back, and consequently it created a very elongated wound, just as you would expect a yawing bullet to do, in Connolly's back. But then it proceeded to miss all bone until it grazed a rib bone, exited the chest, grazed the bone in the wrist, and then, having almost spent its energy, entered Connolly's left thigh and did not penetrate very deeply, hence the fact that it could exit his body on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital. When a bullet is decelerating, it suffers less damage than if it is being fired at an enormous speed when it hits bone. If you look at the third shot, the third shot hit JFK's skull and nothing else, and therefore it hit JFK's skull, 
at a top speed of nearly 2,000 miles an hour. As a result, the skull completely disintegrated on the right side of JFK's head, and the bullet was split into two horribly mangled pieces, which were later found in the car. A bullet that hits bone at high rates of speed, like that third bullet, is going to be terribly deformed, and in fact, this bullet was split in half. But in the case of the bullet that hit JFK and Connolly, the bullet was decelerating after it left Kennedy's throat and continued to decelerate as it passed through Connolly. Bullets that decelerate and move at relatively slow speeds suffer less damage than bullets that hit bone at full speed. Now, this is counterintuitive to what a layperson would expect. A layperson would think that a bullet that hit bone at its top speed would be less likely to suffer damage. But in fact, the opposite is true. So when we look at the rest of the story, as I said in our first episode, and not just half the story, we see that the half-story hoax of a magic bullet in the case of the second bullet is just that, a hoax. And once you hear the whole story, things begin to make sense. A bullet did not have to make right turns and left turns. It just had to speed in a straight direction, diagonally from the sixth floor window, through two men who were also in a diagonal line, Connolly's seat being indented into the car, Connolly being to the left of Kennedy, although in the seat in front of Kennedy, but directly in line of a straight shot from the sixth floor window. Mr. Reiner, that's the explanation for the mystery. So please revise your podcast on the so-called magic bullet, or better yet, retire it. Although there are a thousand books that retail one absurd theory or another about the Kennedy assassination, there are a few books that are sound and well-recommended to any reader who wants to know the facts of the assassination. The three books that I would recommend are Gerald Posner's Case Closed, Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History, and Michael Gagne, Thinking Critically About the Kennedy Assassination, Debunking Myths and Conspiracy Theories. These will give you not only the rest of the story, but the nuances and outlines that support the arguments in this podcast episode and that make the truths of the JFK assassination undeniable. Next time we look at the strengths of the Warren Commission, this is your host, Rick Ryman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode of AudiblySpeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on AudiblySpeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.